Book Two, Section One of On Duties by Cicero, translated by Walter Miller. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. One. I believe, Marcus, my son, that I have fully explained in the preceding book how duties are derived from moral rectitude, or rather from each of virtue's four divisions. My next step is to trace out those kinds of duty which have to do with the comforts of life, with the means of acquiring the things that people enjoy, with influence and with wealth. In this connection the question is, as I said, one, what is expedient, and what is inexpedient, and two, of several expedients, which is of more and which of most importance. These questions I shall proceed to discuss, after I have said a few words in vindication of my present purpose and my principles of philosophy. Although my books have aroused in not a few men the desire not only to read but to write, yet I sometimes fear that what we term philosophy is distasteful to certain worthy gentlemen, and that they wonder that I devote so much time and attention to it. Now, as long as the state was administered by the men to whose care she had voluntarily entrusted herself, I devoted all my effort and thought to her. But when everything passed under the absolute control of a despot, and there was no longer any room for statesmanship or authority of mine, and finally, when I had lost the friends who had been associated with me in the task of serving the interests of the state, and who were men of the highest standing, I did not resign myself to grief, by which I should have been overwhelmed, had I not struggled against it. Neither, on the other hand, did I surrender myself to a life of sensual pleasure unbecoming to a philosopher. I would that the government had stood fast in the position it had begun to assume, and had not fallen into the hands of men who desired not so much to reform as to abolish the Constitution. For then, in the first place, I should now be devoting my energies more to public speaking than to writing, as I used to do when the Republic stood. And in the second place, I should be committing to written form not these present essays, but my public speeches, as I often formerly did. But when the Republic, to which all my care and thought and effort used to be devoted, was no more then of course my voice was silenced in the forum and in the senate. And, since my mind could not be wholly idle, I thought, as I had been well read along these lines of thought from my early youth, that the most honourable way for me to forget my sorrows would be by turning to philosophy. As a young man I had devoted a great deal of time to philosophy as a discipline. But, after I began to fill the high offices of state, and devoted myself heart and soul, to the public service, there was only so much time for philosophical studies as was left over from the claims of my friends and of the state. All of this was spent in reading. I had no leisure for writing. 2. Therefore, amid all the present most awful calamities, I yet flatter myself that I have won this good out of evil, that I may commit to written form matters not at all familiar to our countrymen, but still very much worth their knowing. For what, in the name of heaven, is more to be desired than wisdom? What is more to be prized? What is better for a man? What more worthy of his nature? Those who seek after it are called philosophers, 
and philosophy is nothing else if one will translate the word into our idiom than the love of wisdom wisdom moreover as the word has been defined by the philosophers of old is the knowledge of things human and divine and of the causes by which those things are controlled and if the man lives who would belittle the study of philosophy i quite fail to see what in the world he would see fit to praise for if we are looking for mental enjoyment and relaxation what pleasure can be compared with the pursuits of those who are always studying out something that will tend toward and effectively promote a good and happy life or if regard is had for strength of character and virtue then this is the method by which we can attain to those qualities or there is none at all and to say there is no method for securing the highest blessings when none even of the least important concerns is without its method is the language of people who talk without due reflection and who blunder in matters of the utmost importance furthermore if there is really a way to learn virtue where shall one look for it when one has turned aside from this field of learning now when i am advocating the study of philosophy i usually discuss this subject at greater length as i have done in another of my books for the present i meant only to explain why deprived of the tasks of public service i have devoted myself to this particular pursuit but people raise other objections against me and that too philosophers and scholars asking whether i think i am quite consistent in my conduct for although our school maintains that nothing can be known for certain yet they urge i make a habit of presenting my opinions on all sorts of subjects and at this very moment am trying to formulate rules of duty but i wish that they had a proper understanding of our position for we academicians are not men whose minds wander in uncertainty and never know what principles to adopt for what sort of mental habit or rather what sort of life would that be which should dispense with all rules for reasoning or even for living not so with us but as other schools maintain that some things are certain others uncertain we differing with them say that some things are probable others improbable what then is to hinder me from accepting what seems to me to be probable while rejecting what seems to be improbable and from shunning the presumption of dogmatism while keeping clear of that recklessness of assertion which is as far as possible removed from true wisdom and as to the fact that our school argues against everything that is only because we could not get a clear view of what is probable unless a comparative estimate were made of all the arguments on both sides but this subject has been i think quite fully set forth in my academics and although my dear cicero you are a student of that most ancient and celebrated school of philosophy with cratipos as your master and he deserves to be classed with the founders of that illustrious sect still i wish our school which is closely related to yours not to be unknown to you let us now proceed to the task in hand three five principles accordingly have been laid down for the pursuance of duty two of them have to do with propriety and moral rectitude two with the external conveniences of life means wealth influence the fifth 
with the proper choice if ever the four first mentioned seem to be in conflict the division treating of moral rectitude then has been completed and this is the part with which i desire you to be most familiar the principle with which we are now dealing is that one which is called expediency the usage of this word has been corrupted and perverted and has gradually come to the point where separating moral rectitude from expediency it is accepted that a thing may be morally right without being expedient and expedient without being morally right no more pernicious doctrine than this could be introduced into human life there are to be sure philosophers of the very highest reputation who distinguish theoretically between these three conceptions although they are indissolubly blended together and they do this i assume on moral conscientious principles for whatever is just they hold is also expedient and in like manner whatever is morally right is also just it follows then that whatever is morally right is also expedient those who fail to comprehend that theory do often in their admiration for shrewd and clever men take craftiness for wisdom but they must be disabused of this error and their way of thinking must be wholly converted to the hope and conviction that it is only by moral character and righteousness not by dishonesty and craftiness that they may attain to the objects of their desires of the things then that are essential to the sustenance of human life some are inanimate gold and silver for example the fruits of the earth and so forth and some are animate and have their own peculiar instincts and appetites of these again some are rational others irrational horses oxen and the other cattle bees whose labor contributes more or less to the service and subsistence of man are not endowed with reason of rational beings two divisions are made gods and men worship and purity of character will win the favor of the gods and next to the gods and a close second to them men can be most helpful to men the same classification may likewise be made of the things that are injurious and hurtful but as people think that the gods bring us no harm they decide leaving the gods out of the question that men are most hurtful to men as for mutual helpfulness those very things which we have called inanimate are for the most part themselves produced by man's labors we should not have them without the application of manual labor and skill nor could we enjoy them without the intervention of man and so with many other things for without man's industry there could have been no provisions for health no navigation no agriculture no ingathering or storing of the fruits of the field or other kinds of produce then too there would surely be no exportation of our superfluous commodities or importation of those we lack did not men perform these services by the same process of reasoning without the labor of man's hands the stone needful for our use would not be quarried from the earth nor would iron copper gold and silver hidden far within be mined for and how could houses ever have been provided in the first place for the human race to keep out the rigors of the cold and alleviate the discomforts of the heat or how could the ravages of furious tempest or of earthquake or of time upon them afterward have been repaired 
had not the bonds of social life taught men in such events to look to their fellow-men for help think of the aqueducts canals irrigation works breakwaters artificial harbors how should we have these without the work of man from these and many other illustrations it is obvious that we could not in any way without the work of man's hands have received the profits and the benefits accruing from inanimate things finally of what profit or service could animals be without the cooperation of man for it was men who were the foremost in discovering what use could be made of each beast and to-day if it were not for man's labour we could neither feed them nor break them in nor take care of them nor yet secure the profits from them in due season by man too noxious beasts are destroyed and those that can be of use are captured why should i recount the multitude of arts without which life would not be worth living at all for how would the sick be healed what pleasure would the well enjoy what comforts should we have if there were not so many arts to minister to our wants in all these respects the civilized life of man is far removed from the standard of the comforts and wants of the lower animals and without the association of men cities could not have been built or peopled in consequence of city life laws and customs were established and then came the equitable distribution of private rights and a definite social system upon these institutions followed a more humane spirit and consideration for others with the result that life was better supplied with all it requires and by giving and receiving by mutual exchange of commodities and conveniences we succeeded in meeting all our wants five i have dwelt longer on this point than was necessary for who is there to whom those facts which panetius narrates at great length are not self-evident namely that no one either as a general in war or as a statesman at home could have accomplished great things for the benefit of the state without the hearty cooperation of other men he cites the deeds of themistocles pericles cyrus agesilaus alexander who he says could not have achieved so great success without the support of other men he calls in witnesses whom he does not need to prove a fact that no one questions and yet as on the one hand we secure great advantages through the sympathetic cooperation of our fellow-men so on the other there is no curse so terrible but it is brought down by man upon man there is a book by disiarchus on the destruction of human life he was a famous and eloquent peripatetic and he gathered together all the other causes of destruction floods epidemics famines and sudden incursions of wild animals in myriads by whose assaults he informs us whole tribes of men have been wiped out and then he proceeds to show by way of comparison how many more men have been destroyed by the assaults of men that is by wars or revolutions than by any and all other sorts of calamity since therefore there can be no doubt on this point that man is the source of both the greatest help and the greatest harm to man i set it down as the peculiar function of virtue to win the hearts of men and to attach them to one's own service and so those benefits that human life derives from inanimate objects and from the employment and use of animals 
are ascribed to the industrial arts. The cooperation of men, on the other hand, prompt and ready for the advancement of our interests, is secured through wisdom and virtue, in men of superior ability. And indeed, virtue, in general, may be said to consist almost wholly in three properties. The first is wisdom, the ability to perceive what in any given instance is true and real, what its relations are, its consequences, and its causes. The second is temperance, the ability to restrain the passions, which the Greeks call pathe, and make the impulses, hormai, obedient to reason. And the third is justice, the skill to treat with consideration and wisdom those with whom we are associated in order that we may, through their cooperation, have our natural wants supplied in full and overflowing measure, that we may ward off any impending trouble, avenge ourselves upon those who have attempted to injure us, and visit them with such retribution as justice and humanity will permit. 6. I shall presently discuss the means by which we can gain the ability to win and hold the affections of our fellow-men, but I must say a few words by way of preface. Who fails to comprehend the enormous twofold power of fortune for weal and for woe? When we enjoy her favouring breeze, we are wafted over to the wished-for haven. When she blows against us, we are dashed to destruction. Fortune herself, then, does send those other less usual calamities, arising first from inanimate nature, hurricanes, storms, shipwrecks, catastrophes, conflagrations, second from wild beasts, kicks, bites, and attacks. But these, as I have said, are comparatively rare. But think on the one side of the destruction of armies, three lately, and many others at many different times. The loss of generals, of a very able and eminent commander recently, the hatred of the masses, too, and the banishment that, as a consequence, frequently comes to men of eminent services, their degradation and voluntary exile. Think, on the other hand, of the successes, the civil and military honours, and the victories, though all these contain an element of chance. Still, they cannot be brought about, whether for good or for ill, without the influence and the cooperation of our fellow-men. With this understanding of the influence of fortune, I may proceed to explain how we can win the affectionate cooperation of our fellows, and enlist it in our service. And if the discussion of this point is unduly prolonged, let the length be compared with the importance of the object in view. It will then, perhaps, seem even too short. Whenever, then, people bestow anything upon a fellow-man to raise his estate or his dignity, it may be from any one of several motives. 1. It may be out of good will, when for some reason they are fond of him. 2. It may be from esteem, if they look up to his worth and think him deserving of the most splendid fortune a man can have. 3. They may have confidence in him and think that they are thus acting for their own interests. Or. 4. They may fear his power. 5. They may, on the contrary, hope for some favour, as, for example, when princes or demagogues bestow gifts of money, or finally, six, they may be moved by the promise of payment or reward. 
this last is i admit the meanest and most sordid motive of all both for those who are swayed by it and for those who venture to resort to it for things are in a bad way when that which should be obtained by merit is attempted by money but since recourse to this kind of support is sometimes indispensable i shall explain how it should be employed but first i shall discuss those qualities which are more closely allied to merit now it is by various motives that people are led to submit to another's authority and power they may be influenced one by good will two by gratitude for generous favors conferred upon them three by the eminence of that other's social position or by the hope that their submission will turn to their own account four by fear that they may be compelled perforce to submit five they may be captivated by the hope of gifts of money and by liberal promises or finally six they may be bribed with money as we have frequently seen in our own country seven but of all motives none is better adapted to secure influence and hold it fast than love nothing is more foreign to that end than fear for Aeneas says admirably, Whom they fear, they hate, and whom one hates, one hopes to see him dead. And we recently discovered, if it was not known before, that no amount of power can withstand the hatred of the many. The death of this tyrant, whose yoke the state endured under the constraint of armed force, and whom it still obeys more humbly than ever, though he is dead, illustrates the deadly effects of popular hatred and the same lesson is taught by the similar fate of all other despots of whom practically no one has ever escaped such a death for fear is but a poor safeguard of lasting power while affection on the other hand may be trusted to keep it safe forever but those who keep subjects in check by force would of course have to employ severity masters for example toward their servants when these cannot be held in control in any other way but those who in a free state deliberately put themselves in a position to be feared are the maddest of the mad for let the laws be never so much overborne by some one individual's power let the spirit of freedom be never so intimidated still sooner or later they assert themselves either through unvoiced public sentiment or through secret ballots disposing of some high office of state freedom suppressed and again regained bites with keener fangs than freedom never endangered let us then embrace this policy which appeals to every heart and is the strongest support not only of security but also of influence and power namely to banish fear and cleave to love and thus we shall most easily secure success both in private and in public life furthermore those who wish to be feared must inevitably be afraid of those whom they intimidate what for instance shall we think of the elder dionysius with what tormenting fears he used to be racked for through fear of the barber's razor he used to have his hair singed off with a glowing coal in what state of mind do we fancy Alexander of Fieri lived? We read in history that he dearly loved his wife Thebe, and yet, whenever he went from the banquet hall to her in her chamber, he used to order a barbarian, one, two, tattooed like a Thracian, as the record state, to 
to go before him with a drawn sword, and he used to send ahead some of his bodyguard to pry into the lady's caskets, and to search and see whether some weapon were not concealed in her wardrobe. Unhappy man! To think a barbarian, a branded slave, more faithful than his own wife. Nor was he mistaken, for he was murdered by her own hand, because she suspected him of infidelity. And indeed, no power is strong enough to be lasting if it labors under the weight of fear. Witness Phalaris, whose cruelty is notorious beyond that of all others. He was slain, not treacherously, like that Alexander, whom I named but now, not by a few conspirators, like that tyrant of ours, but the whole population of Agrigentum rose against him with one accord. Again, did not the Macedonians abandon Demetrius and march over as one man to Pyrrhus? And again, when the Spartans exercised their supremacy tyrannically, did not practically all the allies desert them and view their disaster at Leuctra as idle spectators? Eat. I prefer in this connection to draw my illustrations from foreign history rather than from our own. Let me add, however, that as long as the empire of the Roman people maintained itself by acts of service, not of oppression, wars were waged in the interest of our allies or to safeguard our supremacy. The end of our wars was marked by acts of clemency or by only a necessary degree of severity. The Senate was a haven of refuge for kings, tribes, and nations, and the highest ambition of our magistrates and generals was to defend our provinces and allies with justice and honor, and so our government could be called more accurately a protectorate of the world than a dominion. This policy and practice we had begun gradually to modify even before Sulla's time, but since his victory we have departed from it altogether, for the time had gone by when any oppression of the allies could appear wrong, seeing that atrocities so outrageous were committed against Roman citizens. In Sulla's case, therefore, an unrighteous victory disgraced a righteous cause, for when he had planted his spear, and was selling under the hammer in the forum the property of men who were patriots and men of wealth, and, at least, Roman citizens, he had the effrontery to announce that he was selling his spoils. After him came one who, in an unholy cause, made an even more shameful use of victory, for he did not stop at confiscating the property of individual citizens, but actually embraced whole provinces and countries in one common ban of ruin. And so, when foreign nations had been oppressed and ruined, we have seen a model of Marseilles carried in a triumphal procession, to serve as proof to the world that the supremacy of the people had been forfeited. And that triumph we saw celebrated over a city without whose help our generals have never gained a triumph for their wars beyond the Alps. I might mention many other outrages against our allies if the sun had ever beheld anything more infamous than this particular one. Justly, therefore, are we being punished for if we had not allowed the crimes of many to go unpunished, so great license would never have centred in one individual. His estate descended by inheritance to but a few individuals, his ambitions to many scoundrels. 
and never will the seed and occasion of civil war be wanting so long as villains remember that blood-stained spear and hope to see another as publius sulla wielded that spear when his kinsman was dictator so again thirty-six years later he did not shrink from a still more criminal spear and still another sulla who was a mere clerk under the former dictatorship was under the later one a city quester from this one would realize that if such rewards are offered civil wars will never cease to be and so in rome only the walls of her houses remain standing and even they wait now in fear of the most unspeakable crimes but our republic we have lost for ever but to return to my subject it is while we have preferred to be the object of fear rather than of love and affection that all these misfortunes have fallen upon us and if such retribution could overtake the roman people for their injustice and tyranny what ought private individuals to expect and since it is manifest that the power of goodwill is so great and that of fear is so weak it remains for us to discuss by what means we can most readily win the affection linked with honour and confidence which we desire but we do not all feel this need to the same extent for it must be determined in conformity with each individual's vocation in life whether it is essential for him to have the affection of many or whether the love of a few will suffice let this then be settled as the first and absolute essential that we have the devotion of friends affectionate and loving who value our worth for in just this one point there is but little difference between the greatest and the ordinary man and friendship is to be cultivated almost equally by both all men do not perhaps stand equally in need of political honour fame and the good will of their fellow-citizens nevertheless if these honours come to a man they help in many ways and especially in the acquisition of friends End of section eight recording in memory of mitchell edwards